0: Hello, everyone. This is Justin Grammons, the host of the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. Thanks so much for listening today. Just dropping in here before this episode starts to let you know about our first ever full-day-long conference on Applied Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning. It's going to happen on Friday, November 4th. It will be in person in St. Paul, Minnesota. And how can you register for this event? We'll go to AppliedAIConf.com. And for being a loyal podcast listener... Just use the discount code of podcast to receive a 50% off discount on your ticket purchase. So again, it's Friday, November 4th in St. Paul, Minnesota. The Applied Artificial Intelligence Conference will be talking about all about artificial intelligence, machine learning, applications to our world, a great networking opportunity. We've got a full range of speakers talking about all sorts of different applications in a wide variety of industries. So look forward to seeing you there Friday, November 4th. Check it out at AppliedAIconf.com and use the discount code of podcast. So thanks so much all, and on with the next episode.
1: For example, a user might say that they want to have pizza. Oh no, no, I don't actually want pizza. Let's go with a burger instead. Um, no, 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 burger is fine, but I also need a couple of hot dogs. And this is where real human might lose connect, control of what the hell is happening. And the bot will lose, lose control much, much faster. In reality, humans, we clarify things, right? We ask clarifying questions. Like, Justin, what is the picture behind you, right? And you would tell me the story about it and so on. But the bot, to clarify something, the bot has to be programmed to do that. And uh, in many ways, clarifying everything is not so easy.
2: Welcome to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast where Justin Grammans and the team at Emerging Technologies North talk with experts in the fields of artificial intelligence and deep learning. In each episode, we cut through the hype and dive into how these technologies are being applied to real-world problems today. We hope that you find this episode educational and applicable to your industry and connect with us to learn more about our organization at AppliedAI.mn. Enjoy.
0: Welcome everyone to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. Today we're talking with Daniel Kornev. Daniel- is Chief Product Officer for DeepPavlov.ai, which is the developer behind the DeepPavlov open-source conversational AI stack for building voice assistants. Daniel has also served as an advisor to the Alexa Prize team from the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology. Before DeepPavlov, he founded and led an AI-driven startup called Zet Universe and was both a technical program manager at Google and a dev evangelist at Microsoft. Daniel has an MS in computer science and has done extensive research in computer vision interaction. Thank you, Daniel, for being on the program today.
1: It's a big pleasure of mine. Thank you so much for getting me forward, Justin.
0: Well, yeah, no, we, we love talking with people doing interesting and fun things in the space of artificial intelligence. And I can't wait to uh, learn more about kind of what you got into this space or how you got into this space and some of the awesome things you're doing at Deep Pavlov. Maybe, maybe we could rewind the clock back and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about your trajectory of your career and, and how you got to where you are today.
1: It's like three things that changed my career forever. Was it thing number one, we got a computer back in 1994 with uh, Windows 3.11 workgroups. And the second thing is probably when I learned about Windows Lancorn and WinFS, which was a big dream of Bill Gates. And that happened like a decade later, obviously. That was a fascinating idea that Bill imagined where Windows would be smart, where it would know everything about data in computer. So essentially, he envisioned that computer could have a personal knowledge graph in Windows and everything, all apps would work on top of it. That was a fantastic idea. I was so fascinated. I thought, like, everything they, wrote in the, or they read in the science fiction could become... As some readers might be aware, Windows died. And then Bill Gates started another project called Microsoft Semantic Engine. It was called Arena internally. And that what sparked my interest. I wanted to build this kind of smart systems. I didn't want to make mistakes that were made in Winifaz. And I worked at Microsoft at the time, so I had a chance to talk to those people. And I was amazed. So like we discussed with you a little bit earlier, I worked on things like personal AI assistants before that was more or less coined. It was like back in the second half of 2000s when everything we knew about assistants was basically things Eric Horvitz made for Office. So small Microsoft agents that inspired Clippy and other things. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kalo from DARPA, Cognitive Assistant, notes and organizers that spinned off into Siri. So that, that 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 kind of things that inspired me a lot to build things.
0: That's awesome. So you're you're working at Microsoft, and you were I think you were a like a like a program manager and dev evangelist there, kind of getting into this conversational yeah, yeah. AI or just understanding how these smart assistants would work. Now now where where did you go from from there?
1: Essentially, when I joined Microsoft, uh, yeah, I was a, a developer evangelist, but that was just for a year, year and three months, something like that. I quickly changed my career to become a program manager because that's where I could be more productive because I could coordinate multiple projects at the same time. I could easily talk to headquarters in Redmond, Washington. And I've enjoyed a lot doing that kind of stuff. But I also was driving the uh, idea of making Windows semantic or contextually a war. I worked a little bit with folks from Windows selling team. I worked with folks from Office Labs. We built a Think Week paper for Bill Gates. He didn't read it, but some other executives read it, like Donald Thompson, who was CTO at Microsoft back at the time. He's still a friend of mine on Facebook today. And that inspired me to work to build something in my own hands. So I, not only I inspired people at Microsoft. We actually had a workshop at Microsoft Research back in two thousand ten. It's like fifty senior people across the company discussing this kind of stuff. But I was also building it by my hands. So I joined Microsoft Research as an intern. After internship, I spent like a year at Google. I left Google and decided to finally build my own company. I was I couldn't be stopped. And I spent like more than five years building this kind of thing. So I built a system that was combining data from different data sources for product managers, project managers, and other people like me, and allowed them to see the data organized by projects, not by sources from where they come. Obviously, this was inspired by VinaFest. It's like a semantic middle world between everything that the user works with and the user. And I also built a Zoom mobile user interface on top of it so that people could interact with it. It was a very cool endeavor for me because I had to build like data pipelines that would grab data and process it using different processors. And that was before pipelines became a thing in data science world, I think, or something around that time. I built that visual interface with touch input and other things. So it was a lot of fun. And at some point I realized that I was building a lot of this middle war thing and UI thing, but I needed to focus on the AI systems. And the AI systems they had voice, they had text input. So I shifted to that. At Yandex, I helped ship the AI system for smart speaker. In 2018. Then I worked for one of the conversational AI startups in Boston. And later, the, after the time, I joined Deep Power for rebuilding this open-source conversational AI stack. And it's pretty crazy adventure, put it this way.
0: And a long run. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like maybe you're a serial entrepreneur. You, you really like working with small companies, working on sort of the, the cutting-edge new technology.
1: E- yes and no. After the first startup, I said myself that I'm not going to work on the startup anymore. So I joined big company. A year later, it turns out that uh, politics in the company can be crazy. I've seen like half of teams that worked on the AI system for the company. They moved to different places, left the company and so on. So I decided that maybe small companies are faster and uh, less maybe political. Just to give a comparison, at Yandex, at some point I had to coordinate 20 teams across five different organizations under five different white presidents to get things done. It was a lot of fun. But obviously when you coordinate with so many people, you get politics involved. <laughs> and when you're in a small startup, you you don't usually have that kind of problem. You don't have to go through throw five fights presidents to get things done. You can just, you know, like ask Joe, hey Joe, can we put this feature in the system? And hopefully sure. tomorrow, or not in the next couple of
0: months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So tell me a little bit more than about like the size of the company of Deep Pavlov.
1: Sure, I think it's about 30 people, something like that, 25 to 30 people. But it's mostly people who work on applied research and build products. And then we have a small team that is working fundamental research in the, term, in the case of memory transformers and other things. But mostly stuff I work on is running this open source conversation, AI stack, uh, making it happen.
0: We'll include liner notes and, and links and stuff like that off to dpavlov.ai and, and the open source conversational AI stack, but maybe you could summarize it in just you know a sentence or two or a, a paragraph or two, I guess, with regards to what, what you guys are doing there.
1: Sure. So basically, imagine you want to build your own Alexa or Google <laughs> Assistant. And usually what you need to do is go to big company and go through lots of politics and grab a lot of resources. And then you will have to build everything. You have to build an NLP stack which would understand what people say, extract intents, extract sentiment and other things that are features of the language that are important for you to understand what people are doing then you need to build an engine that would allow you to um, control conversation between the user and the systems with scenarios then you have to apply a general model like gpt3 or something like that and so on that's one hand side then you have to add lots of different skills that will allow the system to do different kinds of activities for you on behalf of you like call taxi play music and so on so then you need to build orchestration that will allow you to um, grab all of those skills together and then pick the right skill for the right ask from the user. And that's just one side of the story. The other side of the story is to build fulfillment or the semantic middleware, if you like, where you need to connect the dots between what the user wants with the services that can fulfill users' demand. So like, you, if you want to go to a taxi, then you have to have a service that wraps API around some taxi service like Uber or Lyft or something like that. As you can imagine, it's a huge endeavor. That's why Amazon Alexa folks, they still have like a 1,000 open career jobs at their website. The same goes for Google, the same goes for Yandex. Obviously, Yandex is a smaller company and so on. But still, the problem is it's a huge endeavor. What we try to do and what we're working hard to do is to democratize this. So we've built a mechanism to build skills using scenario-driven approach and through generative models. We build an orchestrator that allows you to put lots of skills into the system and then orchestrate conversation in such a way that when user wants something, a correct skill is invoked. And now everything of this is available as a stack of technology. So at the bottom we have models that allow you to extract data from user phrases like intents or sentiment or emotions and other things, entities, obviously. Second level, as I said, is that engine and the third, we have agents that orchestrates conversations, and finally, we have the power of dream. The Depout Dream is our platform for building multi-skill AI systems. It allows you to build your own Alexa, essentially, from all of these tools. Everything is open-sourced, everything is other Apache to the toe, so you can grab it and bring it to your company and build your own thing based on this. Long story short, that's how you can build your own Alexa without spending lots of millions of dollars on building everything from scratch, like Amazon and Google and Microsoft and Siri did.
0: That's awesome. Google had this thing called the AIY, which where they had like a vision kit and they had a voice kit stuff. Are you Do you remember them putting out those things couple, some years back?
1: I, I think I heard about that. They also have IBI that they acquired and they created a flow out of it. But Google in many ways, they were secondary to Alexa. When Alexa was uh, shipped, Google just had Google Now. It was far cry from what Alexa had. So they had to be really fast and to catch up. In many ways, I think Google is still catching up. Through they have fantastic people. Actually, some of them are coming from the same company, and I really, really admire their work.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, like I said, I think they put together this kit, and it basically had a little, like a, like a Raspberry Pi, and it just, it, it was using open source libraries from my, from my understanding. I, I got the Vision Kit, which was basically running OpenCV. On it, and they just kind of packaged it up into this kit you could buy for I don't even know what it was, maybe ninety nine dollars or whatever. Yeah, yeah, hundred
1: dollars. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, and like a little cardboard box, and you would assemble the thing. But I mean, it was it was built on you know kind of open source software, but you know again, it was all wrapped in Google's ecosystem. This, it exactly. sounds like what you guys have built here is is completely open source. I'm looking at your GitHub repository. I mean, you get you can download, you can get a Docker container with everything sort of fired up and ready to go, right?
1: Absolutely, and a couple of more things here. I really love that you said about the Docker containers and so on, but also about the Raspberry Pi. So there was a company called Snips. They were founded by uh, ex-CTO of Next Computers. He later worked uh, for Apple with Steve Jobs in France, I, I believe. And they had a fantastic team. They had a fantastic team. They managed to build a very small system, much smaller than ours anyway, in many ways, and much simpler, obviously, because of that. But they even able to run it on Raspberry Pi completely. SNIPS. And back in 2019 after I left Yandex I actually um, got SNIPS got a Bluetooth soundbar a microphone <laughs> actually this is a microphone I have. It's uh, omnidirectional so it, it helps you to imitate Alexa Echo device. And I managed to build a very simple prototype of what you could afford with SNIPS and it was fantastic that it worked on the device you had a word working right here actually wakeboard on there. Alexa also working on the device but everything else is practice on the cloud. In case of what Snips we were able to do, that was processed here, but obviously ASR was garbage. So they, yeah. avi- they enabled you to use ASR from Google and Mel. Well. In our case, everything is running in the cloud, but in our cloud, but you can download to your, so- to your own computers and it run- can run it here just big enough. It's a bit too big. We're working now building smaller distributions. Let me put it this way. It's like in Linux, you have distributions.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And Windows, you have SKUs, like Home Edition, Professional Edition, and so on. Basically, grab the components, and then you pick what you want to build. So our DePaul Dream has the same model. You have assistant distribution folder. And when it goes there, it's just a set of configuration files. We specify what kind of components you want to run. And that's essentially how you build an assistant of your own through the already available components. And you obviously can build your own components. We have workshops illustrating you how you can do all of those things. So it's pretty much available to the general public. And we are working hard to bring more instructions, more tutorials.
0: What's the business model? So do you guys have services then you run on top of this that can help companies?
1: Yeah. So right now we have academic academic organization, and we're currently working on building some of those things available commercially. So one of the things we're building is Entity extraction Service. It extracts entities from the text and links them to Wikidata. There is a service called dandelion.eu that provides the same functionality. And there are some other companies that do the same. So what we want to do is to make this available to the general public, it's already running uh, internal beta, get money from selling it. And the same story goes to the whole platform, but we need to build you know, these tenants and tenant management and web platform where you can configure your system without having to go to Docker or editing JSON files and so on. So that's what we're working on. We hope to get some early bits by the end of this year and make them available. Right now, this is obviously more friendly to developers who can Hook everything up the way they want and use it.
0: And was that was, was that more of a text text based solution? Is that what you were saying, or or is it voice?
1: Excellent question. So our solution in, uh, internally is obviously text based, but we have models allowing you to use Neva libraries from NVIDIA, who is our partner, by the way. And so we use ASR TTS models from them. We have a custom model that allows you to put sixteen kilobytes buff files to the system. They will be then recognized, transcribed into text, then sent to the pipeline, and then back in the, in the end, they will be added to DTS. test will send you audio back. I saw the demo of this actually a couple of years ago at NVIDIA GTC for 2020. So it's gotcha. pretty straightforward.
0: Yeah, and people can just go to demo.dpavlov.ai, I think, and see a couple of, these, a couple of these demos as well, right?
1: Yeah, actually, it's dream.depalove.ai. That's where they can get a, fanta- a beautiful landing where you can talk to the chatbot and so on. We also have one mm-hmm. important thing. Everything you say to the chatbot will be available to the general public. So we put a lot of placeholders and say, like, don't put credit card data, something like that. And this allows people to get a public data set. That's one of the big challenges in conversation. Yeah, you have like three people after chat, like you and me, But I accept our podcast, which, by the way, is a good idea. I accept the podcast and so on. Most of the data that people talk about is private. So we would help other developers in the academia and the industry by open sourcing the conversation between our users and our chatbot on dream.depavlov.ai.
0: I did go to dream.depavlov.ai and yeah, there's a little chatbot here. You can start typing in your messages. Like I say, there's a warning that pops up. It says, don't put any personal data in here you know, and all, but yeah, I will... I will definitely put a link off to this where people can play around with it. And I was just looking at your GitHub page. So that, that's, that's phenomenal. So first of all, I guess to back up, you know, whenever I hear, hear a conversational AI, for some reason, my mind just goes to Siri and Alexa and all these types of things. But I mean, it, it really, it doesn't need to be only audio-based, right? It's, it's really just this broad-based.
1: Yeah, this is a good question. The fact is we people are multimodal. So even right now, so we are recording this audio and you folks who are listening to us, thank you so much for that. Uh, You will be just listening to us. But the thing is, this conversation is video-based. So we can see each other. We can see each other's faces. We can see each other's smiles and eyes and so on. And that's how we interact. Even when I don't talk, I still have gestures. I still have body movements. And the thing is, that's how we process information. And the other thing is, when we process information, visually, we can do it asynchronously. We can reread once again, once again, once again. But when you build a voice-only user interface, you have to design it very specifically because people can keep in mind just a few things. User interfaces and user interaction between users and the AI system has to be multimodal as well. They have to see you. They have to be able to, de- to recognize your body movements and gestures and see where you're looking at and see your smile and see your sand and recognize it and react to it.
0: For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know what? A startup that I'm working on right now with a friend of mine is actually a presentation. Um, it watches you as you do online presentations. It listens to audio. So make sure that, you know, kind of not having so many ums and ahs or stuttering, slow down, you know, your pace. So there's just strict audio, but there is also a whole video component to it as well. So you're, what you're talking to about is, is essentially a coach, you know, things that humans would do in a lot of cases. But when you're trying to teach a class of 100 people, it's very, very difficult for you to do that. So we've created a piece of software that kind of does a lot of that, riding on top of a lot of existing models and existing technology. But do do you see this conversational AI as replacing humans, kind of complementing what they do? Like, where, where do you see a lot of these things being used today?
1: Oh, it's a crazy question. In some ways, it's obviously something that can help you. Like you gave just, you just gave example where people uh, do a teaching class and they can get suggestions from the system. It's actually very easy to hook up conversational AI to the system. When you as a teacher are answering questions to the audience, a small chatbot can just stay around, not exactly like clipping, but maybe something like this. And instead of asking stupid questions, oh, you're answering, you're talking to the audience. It could give something useful. Like it could show you contextual information relevant to what you're answering to right? So in this way, it obviously can help you. On the other side, obviously, there is a lot of effort trying to replace humans wherever it is possible. I mean, sales process is usually not the most interesting process in the world. Yeah, of course, there is like Glenn, Darier, Glenn Rock, if I'm not mistaken, the fantastic movie with Okay, I forgot the, guy, the guy's name. I will probably get back to it. But the thing is, most of the people don't like sales process, so why not automate it? We had a customer a couple of years ago We worked with them on an earlier version of our platform where we built the thing where it would reach out to bloggers and ask them if they want to do product placement in their blog posts in Instagram or something like that. And the whole process was automated. And only when uh, bloggers said that they actually want to be involved, then the system would connect them to the actual manager from the company. Now, I'm not going to say I'm super proud of the process. Uh, Some morals (laughs) of mine say, hey, Daniel... Maybe that's not the best way to build conversation, but the practical business application makes a lot of sense. You do a lot of cost saving by doing this kind of operation. On the other hand side, AI systems can do a lot of things. I don't know, like some years ago, I had a TEDx talk on functional literacy and other things. But one of the dreams that we in industry have is, AI system is not about just saying what is the weather like outside. It can be our teachers. It can be our friends. It can be our advisors. I can give you a small example, a hopefully motivational one. When I was a kid, my parents brought me to lots of different uh, art studios. And every time there was the same process. I was uh, learning how to draw with a pencil, then how to draw with a pen. I uh, I was learning how to draw on figures, then I was learning how to draw on fruits, then landscapes, then humans, and so on. And all of those times, It was fun, but it was not so engaging. And then one day, I went to another group, another place, and there was a person who didn't have education in uh, teaching. She just was an architect, a working architect. And instead of getting me through the same process, she asked me what do I draw when I'm not asked to draw, what I'm drawing in my free time. And I showed her some of my drawings. And uh, they were just black and white things. And she started bringing me to each next lesson something small things she collected over the years as a professional. And that inspired me to draw more and more and more. And then I got good enough that she brought me a book and so on. And then at some point we had had exhibitions. We had exhibitions in Moscow. We had exhibitions in Los Angeles. We had exhibitions somewhere else. I had my personal exhibitions and so on. I didn't become a professional drawer. Instead, I went to program management at Microsoft because I wanted to build things, not just draw. But the thing is, she was looking at me and she wanted, generally, wanted to uncover my potential. So, a good example of a AI assistant, hopefully motivational one, would be imagine that there is a small assistant, maybe a Ted, a teddy bear, something like that, that is with a kid, and it can see that a kid is drawing. Why couldn't that teddy bear be smart enough to recommend a kid to continue drawing and show good examples? Why couldn't it help a kid grow? Of course, it would be ideal if everyone would have a fantastic human teacher, but sometimes it's not possible. So this is a crazy thing, but if this could be done, imagine what kind of possibilities would conversationally open up to all of us.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I I do see that future. I I have a couple, I have two boys. They're eight and ten years old. And, you know, they have Alexa's in their room and, and they, they ask it to play music, they ask it questions, they, you know, the alarms go off in the morning. But, you know, for I have heard of a number of startups kind of embedding that in sort of in in dolls, in in teddy bears and in, in other things, because in some ways that can be the kid's closest friend and they can interact with it in a more human way if it's smart and intelligent and they could they can get a whole lot of information and much more richer experience, I guess with this device based on, you know, you're using all of this, all the knowledge that's on the internet. It's fascinating.
1: And the thing is that we want to be smart enough and caring enough. We can control, obviously, what we want to say, or what we do not, not want to say. For example, the architecture of our DePower Green platform is a bit straightforward. At some point, when different skills are generating responses, that have to be, and one of those responses usually have to be picked and brought back to the user. We have a row of annotators, that's how we call them. They're basically classifiers or rule-based systems, depending on what you want to do. They're just checking that you're not going to say something that might hurt feelings of the user. Don't want to say words that are prohibited. Don't want to say something that might spoil the conversation, something like that. Of course, that's not ideal right now. But we can do that, and we can make this user experience more friendly to the user. And this is obviously still a far cry for what we can do. I mean, after all, there was this robot called Bishop in the movie Aliens, made by Cameron. And that was a very friendly guy. He was really fighting for the better future of people with him. He was protecting them. And so, so this could be a great future, big building. I hope you're not going to build ash from Aliens. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess tools can be used in all sorts of different ways. But, uh, you know, as long as we, we keep the, the positive side of it going i think humans will continue to to hopefully use it use it for good as i was thinking about one of the other conversational things that i remember this maybe goes back at least close to a seven eight years now or so and maybe you had seen this but it was i think it was called x.ai and it basically was a virtual assistant where you could use a calendar and it would look at your calendar and you would have you know somebody could send you an email and I forget the name of the assistant, he and she, they basically had names, but it was flawed. There, there, there were a number of issues that I had when I was trying to schedule something with people that just misinterpretations, a lot of back and forth. And I know that the person I was trying to schedule with, they ended up just stepping in and just, you know, a lot of times having to just override. Maybe that's not a good example, but I guess, you know, I was thinking about what, what sort of flaws are you seeing that are still happening, I guess, around in this space where maybe we need to get better?
1: That's a good point. Four years ago, folks from Nielsen Norman Group, they made a fantastic UX uh, overview of what's good and what bad with the user interface of AI assistance. There are a few things. It's like you start with how you understand what users saying, And that means uh, you start with ASR and so on. But then you have to intentionally interpret what the user said. And that's a different thing. So one thing is to recognize words. Second is understand what user wants. Then you have to do something for the user, so you usually have to fulfill user's request. And then you have to generate response back, and then you have back transformative voice, and so on. But the thing is, the problem side at all levels. So they start with, okay, SAR can be much, much better. To, it's much, much, better today than it was a couple of years ago, and so on. That's pretty much true, specifically for English language. But when you want to understand what the user wants, there is a myriad of problems here. For example, user might say that they want to have pizza. Oh, no, no, I don't actually want pizza. Let's go with a burger instead. No, 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 burger is fine, but I also need a couple of hot dogs. And this is where real human might lose connect, control of what the hell is happening. And the body yes. will lose, lose control much, much faster. And in reality, humans, we clarify things, right? We ask clarifying questions like, Justin, what is the picture behind you, right? And you would tell me the story about it and so on. But the bot, to clarify something, the bot has to be programmed to do that. And in many ways, clarifying everything is, is not so easy. So we, have, we create abstract models of what something works, how something works. And that's how we try to operate. But the bot doesn't have capacity or capability to build this abstract model. So it has to be programmed if you want to get things done. Obviously, you can also use GPT-3, but then you will never know when it will start faking things. And he'll still think that it's fine. It's like I asked my assistant create a reminder for something. And it said, okay, and I will do. And it, mm, it was just a sure. smart response of a chatbot, a chat, cheat-chat system. So there are a lot of problems with interpreting what users said. And sure. then, obviously, you also have to build a pipeline of sorts of what has to be done. A few years ago, there was a project called Facebook M. They built a fantastic AI system that was running in very limited beta in San Francisco. And the idea was that people could ask anything. And as their founder said, he left Facebook after that, a few years after that. He said that in the beginning, people ask what is like, the weather like outside? Then they ask, show me the best Italian restaurant here. And at some point, they start saying, like, help me to organize a wedding. And the, thing, the way how it used to work was this. Uh, behind the AI system, there were people. The idea was that if a system can do things on its own, it will do. But if it cannot, then the people would step in, they will do the operations, and they will record what exactly they done. So that that could be automated. By the end of the experiment, which I think ended in 2017 or something about that, they said only 30% of tasks could be actually automated. So imagine how many problems we still face in the industry. This is, I think, one of the biggest problems we ever had in the computer industry. Okay, I I might be exaggerating a bit,
0: but it's a really (laughs) huge one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, who who would have thought, you know, some of the early computers, which really were just calculators in some ways, right? They just they automated tasks, would now be doing kind of some very, very complex things today, right? Computers can use computer vision, they can they can drive cars, they can listen to and have some really interesting conversations back and forth. I mean, the whole contextual things and I like to tell people like it was kind of interesting when when I started using um Siri, I, I would say, you know, what was the score of the twins game? And it's the Minnesota Twins. They're the baseball team here in Minnesota. And it knew that, like it knew the context around that. It knew when you say Twins game, it knew you, oh, you're talking about baseball. And it would tell me the score. And I thought that was pretty interesting, like, you know, I, that, that it was able to understand contextually what was going on, which is, yeah, that was cool. Very, very cool. And, and I mean, it's just going to get better and better. But I guess what does five, 10 years look like for you as a person who's been working in this field and seeing all these changes? Where, where do you see it going next?
1: It's a good point. I like how you said about the context and the importance of the context for the chatbot to understand what's going on. I think in the next few years, we will see some sort of a revolution of AI systems. So the revolution will be driven by a couple of things. First, we will need some sort of a semantic middle war, as Alexander Stenz from Microsoft used to say. That middle war would be something between AI systems and the reality. So it can be IoT, it can be applications, it can be anything. And this middle war would uh, allow your yeah, assistants to, um, practically speaking, do things for you. So right now, I can give you an example. A couple of years ago, I have a huge house. It's like 300 square meters. I don't know how huge it is in inches, square, square inches, but you can imagine it, it's much bigger. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the thing is, I put like nine Alexa devices across the house and I brought a lot of cool, smart smartphone equipment to the house. And turns out it was so hard to build something reliable. Like three years later, half of things are dead. A lot of things don't work the way they want. Smart switches don't work the way they want to because half of my house, is the first floor is concrete. So I had to put lots of repeaters for a viral signals uh-huh. and so on. If we want AI assistants to be able to do things for us, there has to be some sort of semantic middle world that would connect them to everything. And if we don't have to connect everything individually. I just plug things and they work. And the second thing is, AI citizens have to be able to experiment. There's a fantastic competition called Igloo from Microsoft Research. My manager, Mikhail Bortsov is a famous researcher of the conversational AI field. He is a co-organizer of the thing. And to, to the best of my knowledge, maybe I'm a little bit wrong, but right now, as far as I understand, he's a co-organizer of this. So that is, the AI citizens can make mistakes. They can fail. And to do that, they need to have a safe environment where they can be taught where they can learn how to clarify things and how to do things for us. And that environment has to be safe so that when they will do mistakes, that won't affect us. So imagine that we have this uh, semantic middleware that connects everything uh, at the bottom. And then we have some simulation of that semantic middleware on top of which you can train your AI assistants. And when we will train them well enough to understand, interpret what users says and map that to the semantic middleware, we can slowly... Steadily brings them back to the real world and make things happen. So that's, I think, what like, might, might make sense for the next five to 10 years.
0: Absolutely. I, I love that idea that, that you can put this AI in a certain state and, and have it make mistakes. I mean, that, that's really how, how children learn. Exactly. Right? they they It's just a series of mistakes. So they need to be able to be put in safe areas and run essentially exercises over and over to train the model i I, had, I actually had never even thought of that i love that so that's project igloo i guess is it is it is there, is there a public facing thing or was no, that no 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 it's not con- name
1: uh, no it's not connected to to DiPaolo directly it's just my boss he is also organizing igloo i just say that igloo is a fantastic illustration of how that could be done we built a very small demo of when you can when you have a bot in minecraft and when you talk to it, it can do things for you. For example, it can build a house for you. But right now it's doing by me saying comments to it. But what if I could say to it, and that's a more or less idea glue, what if you could do build a house and then say it to repeat after me? What if you could say that I'm going to build a wall, put a couple of walls here, here, and here, and put a ceiling, put a stairs? What if you could explain things in natural language to the bot and it would learn? So this is a fantastic premise. And Iglovy is driving this from the research perspective. What uh, I was talking about from De Dream, and Minecraft was a small experiment. We want to uh, combine the things together. And obviously, we have to have to build this semantic middle world, build the simulation, so that we could experiment with this kind of thing. We are not alone, by the way, in this thing. Amazon have this competition. They have a lesser price where well, lots of chatbots participate in this chatbot competition to build a fantastic chatbot that can sustain 20-minute long conversation about anything. But they have a couple of other challenges. One was a taskbot challenge, and the other was a simple challenge, where you, have, uh, you issue comments in natural language to the driving bot, and that bot in, inside your apartment can do things for you. can look up if the gas is open or closed, or if window is open or closed, or something like that. For them, it's a competition. It's competition happening in the uh, simulation as well. But you know that Amazon has Astro. It's still limited, but there's a physical bot that can move around. It has Echo inside it. It's like Roomba with Echo, in a way. So this is already happening, in a way. It's just Amazon's technology is proprietary and closed, and it's very hard to build on something on top of it because you have to be strict. You have to be... um, Using their APIs and you have to be using their Savebox and so But generally, that's what I, I think is happening. Not just me, my colleagues as well.
0: Yeah. And, and so I mentioned during the intro, you were an advisor to the Alexa Prize team. Is that, I'll put a link to the Alexa Prize, but tell us a little bit about that and, and what it was like being an advisor to that.
1: Crazy. <laughs> so basically, when you want to build a social bot that talks to real people and you want to entertain them, you have to design. The chatbot, something, some, some sort of logic behind that. My advisory party was a few things. So I couldn't participate directly. I couldn't write code for the system
0: because it wasn't a student. Because it's for university students only?
1: Yes. I'm no longer a university student, as you can see by mm-hmm. my beard. I mean, when I cut it off, I can't really look like a student anyways. You can, you can pass for it, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the thing is, when I was an advisor, I was reading the dialogues and I was helping folks to change the design of scenarios so that we would fix the conversation to make it better. We were also building a scenario-driven engine and I was experimenting with this engine and building some kind of things and showing that to the team so that the team would figure out how those skills could be built for the system. We use the same platform Dream. Dream was actually a product of participating in a couple of Alexa prize competitions. So that was the second thing. And I was also helping, of course, for the original application. It was at like the prize competition, where my boss, Mikhail Burtsov, and me, we coined the idea of the goal with dialogue management, where we tried to build a system in such a way that we would understand what are the conversational goals of the system, of the user in the chit-chat and then try to detect those goals and try to lead conversation towards them. Turns out it became much harder than we originally anticipated. So we now have a small research group of like four or five people (laughs) who work in this full time. But during the Alexa Prize competition, that's some of the things we experiment with. And of course, it's reading and fixing technical report and meeting with the team every day and so on. But that's a typical force you usually have in a group, so nothing.
0: Yeah, that's that's good. And so, so does this happen every year, the Alexa Prize?
1: Unfortunately, not. So, the last time it happened was a year ago. It ended uh, back in July of 2021. Uh, they didn't announce the next one yet. Instead, they have the symbol challenge, and that's pretty challenging in itself. So, I think the team will end the symbol challenge and probably announce the next Alexa Prize maybe in November, I think. But I don't know. I mean, it's not like I have a chance to open up the curtain and know what is happening.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. If I was just coming out of school, I'm a university student, I guess there's some of these challenges I can get myself involved in. How? What are some other ways you might suggest somebody kind of getting into the conversational AI landscape and 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 learning?
1: The best way to learn, I believe, is by doing. There's a fantastic blog by Steven Sinofsky who used to be president of Windows Division, like learning by shipping. So in mm, many ways, I agree okay. with him. That's how you do it. So for example, you could go to Depal of uh, Dream and grab our platform and try to figure out how it works. And uh, you can... Just like run it on your computer because we have proxies. So you can run it uh, through our proxies and everything will be running in the cloud, but a small part of it will work in your machine. Then you can add more components to it. And we have a very beautiful domain-specific language in Python that allows people to quickly write scenario-driven skills on top of it. And that, that would make it very, very easy. We have actually recorded workshops and tutorials uh, explaining how one could do that. Uh, that's how you can start. Once you get something up and running, it's like when you have an Iron Man's uh, AI system drivers in your hands. And that's working, it's working in your hands. So then you can now slowly, steadily add things up to the system and see how it works. I think it's fantastic. It's like when you want to know how the car works, I don't have one, but I know from experience with my friends and so on. The best way to understand how it works, engineering from an engineering perspective, is to drive it and then to look at the motor, how it works. You want to understand yes. how the engine works and so on. And so on. That's how you do it.
0: Nice, nice. I like that. I like that for sure. Well, Daniel, this has been it's been awesome conversation. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about, maybe that I didn't really touch on in this whole space of conversational AI? We we haven't had too many um, people on talking about this, and it's uh, I'm I'm thrilled that you were able to take some time today to talk to us about it. But I want to make sure if there were other things that maybe I missed or we didn't discuss that that you could share.
1: I think there's one thing that connects uh, back to Scott Lichtman and your conversations about AI-powered knowledge management assistants. I think one of the fantastic things here is when you want to build conversation, some people believe that we just have to use large innovative models. And that's about it, like, call and, and code today. But the thing is, it seems like the reality is near symbolic. Where at some points, you, you have to use things like knowledge graphs, like roots, and so on, to get things done. Sometimes you need to base your work on neural networks. For example, when you want to build a classifier for something like for understanding contents or sentiment or emotions of the user and so on. Neural networks are fantastic. But when you want to have a tight control of how the user experience works, you might want to use some sort of SNAR-driven approach. And the thing here is if you want to build fantastic things in conversational AI, you should not look up yourself to just one of the directions. You should open your eyes really widely and see all of the benefits, different approaches, enable you to build things with. And as I said before, with the example of knowledge graphs, I can give a simple example. When we participated in Alexa Price for the first time, we just had an entity recognition, which could recognize that something is a city or something is a person and so on in the phrases. But when we connected it to the knowledge graph like Wikidata, we were able to pull so much data, structured data that we could talk about for hours about it, So that's just a small but a fantastic example of how much power lies in combining neural networks and symbolic approaches in AI together.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, it seems to be a pretty big movement around graph databases. There's a company called Tiger Graph, and there's a number of people in town here that are speaking a lot about it. And just this idea of just structuring data in a different way through using graph technology. Are you familiar with that, like some of those specific solutions?
1: I mean, sure, when I was working with my startup at the universe, I, uh, I've looked at, I don't know, like 10, 20, 30 examples, different mechanisms how you can build that. At the at DePaul, we use a couple of ways. For Wikidata, we just drop their data in the HDT format, and for ourselves, we build a small custom knowledge graph where we can record things like what people said and link that to the world knowledge graph. We use it for Neo4j for that. There is, by the way, a fantastic team in Yerevan, Unum. They have been entire stack of technologies with uh, key value store, the document database, and graph storage on top of it, and they're building as a stack up and up using C++ and so on. They're fantastic in doing that. And they're a good example of what you can build from the ground up when you perfectly understand what kind of data structures you need.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it, it borders like the whole semantic web, Web 3.0 movement that seems to be... It's been going on for 20 years now, but just trying to get the internet to really behave more. It's just if the data is more structured or in a way that it can be processed better than parsing HTML, likely the better.
1: The biggest problem here is how you can build a bridge and where the bridge should start and where the bridge should end. I bit obviously semantic web idea decade, a couple of decades ago was fantastic, but it was impossible to encode everything in the web, the semantic web things. Yeah, we have schema.org, which allows you to encode multiple things on the web with machine readable formats, but the gap is probably closed differently. You use NLP to extract entities. For example, we have a technology that allows you to extract triplets from the free text. And that's how you can build a knowledge graph ad hoc from the content you have. So I think the breach, it's a question of how you can build a bridge.
0: Yeah. And I, I love what you kind of said earlier. Just, we, we need to take an open mind. We need to take an open approach the way it's been kind of been done in the past. Maybe isn't the right way going forward. So people should start thinking how they can apply all these different technologies and sort of like, yeah, just attack the problem maybe differently.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree with you, Justin. That, that, that's how we build. That's how we evolve.
0: Well, Daniel, how do people reach out to you? Just take a look at Google, I guess, find you on LinkedIn?
1: Yeah, the easiest way is to just put Daniel Kornief in, uh, Google, and Google on you. Probably will hit me at LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and so on. I have a Twitter handle called D-A-N-I-E-L-K-O-L. That was my Alice at Microsoft. I, I still use it like a decade later. So but that's a very easy way to talk to me.
0: Gotcha. And and it looks like Zet Universe is still kind of up and running. Is that true?
1: After stopping working on the Universe full-time, I just use it as a consulting gig. So when I want to consult someone in building cognitive computing systems or something like that, no matter how fancy it's called, it's still AI stuff. I use it as a way to provide services. So if you want to work on something like that, I could provide a services through my company.
0: Excellent. Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link off to that too as well. People want to reach out. But thank you, Daniel. I appreciate the time and all of the information that you gave to us and the Applied AI community. It's been a great, great conversation and love to have you on, I, guess, I think, in the future to sort of see how things are changing and evolving in this in this fast space of conversational AI.
1: Justin, it's been my big pleasure. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I've enjoyed this conversation.
2: You've listened to another episode of the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. We hope you are eager to learn more about applying artificial intelligence and deep learning within your organization. You can visit us at appliedai.mn to keep up to date on our events and connect with our amazing community. Please don't hesitate to reach out to Justin at appliedai.mn if you are interested in participating in a future episode. Thank you for listening.